Hello everyone, welcome to Right of Reply Season 5's final episode and international feminist movements. Before we start this episode, we will discuss sexual assault, genital mutilation, and other gender-based violence. If this makes this episode difficult to listen to, we recommend seeking resources and listening with caution. For this episode, we will be taking a look at some of the most notable movements from the past year. We will be discussing everything from the benefits, the drawbacks, the aspects that went well, and the criticism that came along with it. To start off with the developments in Me Too. So the main feminist movement that happened in the Americas during the past year was the Me Too movement, which I'm sure many people know was a viral surge in late 2017 when a hashtag was used on social media in attempt to discuss and raise awareness about uh, the widespread prevalence of sexual assault and sexual harassment in the workplace. Now, the phrase Me Too was originally started by Tarana Burke in 2006, who is an American social activist and community organizer, and then it later resurged again in 2017 when Alyssa Milano, who is an American actress, used it on Twitter to encourage victims of sexual harassment and assault to share their experiences. And since Alyssa's original tweet, many high-profile celebrities such as Jennifer Lawrence, Ashley Judd, and Uma Thurman began using the hashtag to talk about their own experiences with sexual harassment in their work, um, mainly in Hollywood with those cases, uh, which in some encouraged many men and women across the world to share their stories. Now, Tarana Burke's original purpose in the phrase Me Too was to empower women through uh, empathy-based thinking, especially uh, when regarding young and vulnerable women. Now, when Alyssa used the phrase again in 2017, the meaning was kind of narrowed down into a hashtag to help other victims of sexual assault and harassment um, just know that they're not alone in dealing with the aftermath of uh, their experiences by themselves. Therefore, the movement, if you know, you look at it in a broad sense, did shift to expand to mean different things for different people. Now, this new movement has, in, in what Burke describes, broadened to include men and women of all colors and ages and has made particular notice towards people in marginalized communities. The movement has also sprung um, a series of follow-up hashtags from individuals who have sexually harassed or assaulted other people, including hashtag I did that, hashtag I have, and hashtag I will. Now, these smaller movements have also contributed to a larger and broader conversation of changing the, the, uh, the culture in workplace harassment through personal reflection and future action in terms of um, how to move forward. Now, again, if you look at this in some, the Me Too movement has presented three main pillars in terms of benefits, which is starting a conversation on the topic of sexual harassment and assault, um, providing a platform online to discuss, and lastly, inspiring and supporting victims through their post-healing process. However, the Me Too movement has also been subject to numerous criticisms over the past two years, predominantly for one, increasing the level of androphobia in society, and two, defaming people through what Richard Ackland calls a vortex of litigation. These criticisms suggest that Me Too should only discuss the most severe cases of harassment and abuse in order to prevent labeling men in particular as perpetrators or causing people to become numb to the original problem. And then in regards to defamation, a story that was released on Babe.net in early 2018 where a woman revealed details about her date with... Um, Hollywood comedian Aziz Ansari made for a very divisive nature between how people understood and labeled the movement. 
Now, while many people agreed with the women's labeling of the encounter as sexual assault, others, such as Jill Filipovic, who wrote for The Guardian, described the woman's experience as a, quote, sensational story of a badly behaved man who is nonetheless not a sexual assailant. Now, in response to the broadening of the term and the criticisms that have followed, Burke has mapped out specific goals for the Me Too movement and activism going forward, including processing all untested rape kits in the U.S., better protecting children and other vulnerable groups at school and in the workplace, and updating sexual harassment policies while also expanding sexual violence training in uh, workspaces. Um, so, Tanisha, a follow-up question. Um, on what you mentioned about the role of celebrities in the movement, um, how, how has their contribution helped in uh, keeping the conversation going? I think the role of celebrities in this movement is, in particular, has been incredibly important um, in terms of keeping that conversation alive in many ways. Uh, but in some, it, it kind of boils down to two important pillars, and that's that celebrities have wi- widely recognized names and also have um, large social media followings. Uh, now, because this movement and a lot of movements nowadays are propelled and, and spread through online platforms, the voices of those who have recognized names and, and those who can reach multiple people have the power to guide the uh, the direction of the movement and pr- promote multiple factors such as um, how long the movement will go on, the dynamics, the types of conversations that are being had, and uh, various forms of activism and, and much more. So. You know, even just looking at one of the big cases from this year with uh, with Ford's testimony and how celebrities continued to promote and discuss um, the Me Too movement during that time just kind of shows how the movement can be propelled through uh, continuous dialogue and of keeping a national or, you know, really international conversation going. So really, celebrities do play this, uh, you know, domino effect per se in how this movement is going. They they kind of give light to the issues, which in turn inspires others from all over the world to speak up and also feel supported and comfortable while doing so um, when contributing to the conversation. So you mentioned before how the Me Too movement has expanded to encompass more of an intersectional approach. Has there been any other movements in the Americas that also began as a movement for one specific issue, but expanded to include other intersections? Yes, definitely. Um, I think the Black Lives Matter movement also mirrors that same broadening approach that the uh, that the Me Too movement has exemplified. So Black Lives Matter uh, began as an online international activist movement um, by the African-American community, whose goal was to advocate against violence and systemic racism that occurs against black individuals. Um, however, this original kind of goal got shifted when women began to refocus their attention on how police brutality specifically impacted black women in particular and other vulnerable groups within the racial umbrella, such as low income groups, the elderly and queer individuals. Um, And by doing so, they're not just talking about how police violence impacts these communities, but extending the conversation to be more inclusive. And that was something we saw during the launch of the the Say Her Name campaign, which um, analyzed the experiences of black women who endured uh, police brutality while also um, really highlighting what we lose when we ignore their their perspectives. 
So I'll mostly be discussing uh, the women who have joined or married into ISIS, their experiences and the international responses to some of those experiences. But first, I'll make a quick note about Me Too in the Middle East, because I don't think that's often discussed. So many women and LGBT plus folks and their allies have organized across the region using their own versions of the Me Too hashtag, building off its themes and creating new movements to address their own needs. Others are using the attention on Me Too right now to further their already established causes. So one example I'll just give you is um, in Turkey, there was a campaign, Bend Navin, so which translates to Me Too Navin. In 2012, Navin Yildirim was sentenced to life in prison for killing a man who systematically raped her for years. And um, in January 2018, Yildirim appeared to a higher court and the campaign was launched by a feminist group who claimed um, her act was not murder and was in fact lawful self-defense. I actually don't believe that she won that appeal, but it was a really good movement nonetheless. So moving on, one of the most hotly debated topics this year has been the status of those women who have left their countries of residence to move to Syria or Iraq to join ISIS. So these women are often young, sometimes underage, and um, meet men they want to marry or other women online. They are often promised money, stability, and love. Um, these women are called and call themselves sisters, and many of them are Westerners who are converts to Islam for their husbands, their future husbands, or for the cause of ISIS. Um, so a Guardian reporter, Nabila Jafar, um, kind of went and messaged a lot of these women on some encrypted chat rooms and many of the women she talked to um hated this disordered um and ambiguous idea of the world and they wouldn't engage meaningfully with the islamic text despite their devotion to islam they were motivated by this devotion and the clear-cut doctrines issued by jihadist ideologues appealed to their political sensitivities so marriage for these women was often a pragmatic affair to be able to stay in ISIS territory and help them create what they deemed to be an Islamic utopia. Many of the young girls and women Jaffa talked to over encrypted chat rooms, and some of them were already widowed by the time they were 18 or 17, and often at home they had been bullied and isolated. Um, ISIS propaganda sought out and targeted these individuals, and who specifically who felt like outsiders at home and they were promised this like really perfect world um, in ISIS. A really interesting specific tool that was used to recruit these women were ideas about women and feminism. A lot of them claiming that the West would shame women who chose to have a family and children and that ISIS would actually help them become empowered in these choices. Many of the women who were recruited were highly educated or intelligent and very critical of the West. The propagandists um, often tweeted pictures of themselves carrying AK-47s, despite the fact that they were often banned from using them off camera. This strategic move by ISIS was employed mainly to uh, attract professionals from the West, such as lawyers. Um, it becomes harder as well to return um, once you become an ISIS supporter and once you cross the border into Syria, especially because ISIS tends to destroy passports on arrival. This often leaves families devastated when they find out that um, their family members have crossed uh, from Turkey uh, into Syrian territory and often there's like a huge rush to keep them within Turkey to be able to get them back to their countries of residence. Uh, so Bibi, um, what is the role of agency uh, in these scenarios? Like a lot of these women are uh, actually young girls, uh, not even legal adults, and they're being coerced online. So are they making their own choices and um, can they be held accountable? 
Yeah, so this is a really difficult question that a lot of people have tried to tackle, and it really has to be done kind of on a case-by-case basis. Um, The people in these scenarios are often painted as either a victim or a traitor, but it's really not that simple. So one of the illustrative cases is um, Shamima Begum, who uh, was from Britain. Um, Her citizenship was revoked when she left to join ISIS. She had a couple of children who died, and most recently after her citizenship was revoked, her baby died um, while she was at a refugee camp. So she was 15 when she left to join ISIS. Um, And there's been a huge debate surrounding um, kind of the line between treason and between statelessness, because it's like a really big deal to actually make someone stateless. And she is now stateless because um, the British government assumed that she had Bengali citizenship when she did not. Um, But in a lot of these cases, this is still treason. However, you get tried for treason, right? You have to like come back to your home country and go through a court process where you might be convicted of treason. So these trials usually are not being held in these cases. Um, However, the British foreign minister did suggest that the children of those who lose citizenship in these cases are not necessarily stateless and um, they're not gonna be targeted um, in these cases. However, um, painting people as well as merely victims only furthers kind of these submissive stereotypes about Muslim women. A lot of the time, Though these women are radicalized, um, they're making these choices. They really support ISIS and they really love what they're doing. And so to just merely paint them as someone who's been like coerced, um, honestly, sometimes like regardless of their age, it's like really difficult to do without actually like further removing that person's agency. Um, And I mean, we don't usually tend to have this kind of conversation if it's a man and it's usually just oh like that's like a militant person who like went to join ISIS so yeah it's a really difficult conversation and a lot of people are having it right now just going back to how the life of an ISIS bride is projected online um does this does this reflect the reality and are these sisters being treated well so um, in some cases, yeah, they, they have a great time, but especially with um, kind of the collapse of ISIS right now, um, it's really not going well for them. Um, so often their children and their husbands die, so their husbands will die from um, being martyred, um, and their children will die because of the poor conditions. Often they are also confined inside, they're not allowed to leave their houses, they have uh, the restricted rights that you'd probably expect under Sharia law, um, and they are kind of there to have as many babies as possible, they're there to reproduce, um, and the bad infrastructure of the kind of IS state uh, really, really affects them. However, they are promised participation and they often actually receive some sort of participation. There are some women suicide bombers and fighters. Um, There's also a religious enforcement police force um, where women kind of like go and attack other women who they see as breaking Sharia law. Um, And again, like we just have to be careful um, not to paint them as having no uh, agency or participation and especially because they sought agency and participation while being a part of ISIS um we can't paint them as having no agency now because that's kind of like what the reason that they left um however it's very interesting because 
it kind of creates a self-repeating cycle where these women um, are promised something like really beautiful and really great and they go to um, ISIS territory and that's not what they see there. And because of that, they escape to the online world and create an idealized vision of what their life looks like and kind of repeat the cycle by drawing in and attracting more people there. So our next topic is uh, female genital mutilation. Um, I'll be referring to uh, female genital mutilation as FGM throughout this whole, throughout my section, just to make it easier. So female genital mutilation, or, or, or also known as uh, female genital cutting or f- female circumcision, is a process of removing the external female genitalia. Um, the com- the, this process, this, uh, this, this is common in many countries, but uh, today I'll focus on the continent of Africa for now. Um, but this, it's not merely an African problem. Uh, there are countries in the Middle East and Asia which practice this to this day. So the UN estimates that there are approximately 140 million women and girls that have undergone this procedure in the world. Um, there have been efforts to combat FGM. Uh, the UN issued a full report condemning this act and a full report on its elimination. But country, this, but, but it's still very common and the UN still has a lot of work to do. So countries where this is most common are countries in East and West Africa. Countries like Sudan, where 90% of the women from ages 15 to 49 have gone through FGM. Somalia, where the percentage is 97, Sierra Leone, 94, and Mali, 91, and Burkina Faso, 72. Feminist scholars have tried to address this issue from several directions. Diana Myers, a professor of philosophy, often refers to genital circumcision as cutting. This is because she wants to convey the horrific and unsanitary and the unsafe conditions that women are put in. Feminists have also fought for the right the autonomy of the body. This fight has fought in the United States in the 19th century when genital cut- cutting was seen as a cure for hysteria and homosexuality. From a Western perspective, fe- female cutting is seen as a tr- very, very traumatic experience that causes more harm than good. But for individuals in their own culture, all culture gr- cultural groups, this practice is deep-rooted and is a reaffirming of their indigenous and traditional values. So the UN addressed these cultural justifications for our violations of women's rights in 1995 at the woman, at the Beijing Women's Rights Conference, where they adopted the Cultural ex- Exemption Clause. Here's a portion of the final platform. Quote, while the significance of national and regional particularities and various historical, cultural, and religious backgrounds must be borne in mind, it is a duty of the states, regardless of their political, economic, and cultural systems, to promote and protect all humans, human rights and fundamental freedoms, unquote. So rejecting the cultural justifications for the violations on women's rights was important in setting the precedent for the states on fighting for the rights of these women and to allow women and girls within these communities to fight as well. Feminists in Africa have done a lot to combat this cultural practice, but the largest campaigns against FGMs are rooted in European countries. One example of a campaign in Africa is from Sheikh Ibrahim Hassan. Uh, he began his campaign in Somalia, but many leaders and politicians have politicians have not outright outright criminalized FGM because of the fear of losing votes. Most large scale campaigns and charities and foundations are registered and based in European countries and promoting Western feminism, oftentimes not addressing the cultural and religious context of each community. And FGM is a campaign headquartered in Belgium that is the largest in the world. 
The campaign has several ambassadors of communities that practice FGM and address this issue from several perspectives. They address the human rights violations because of the harmful practice, quote, which violates women's and girls' human rights and the integrity. Culture, tradition, or religion can never justify harming women and girls. They also address the unequal gender relations in some countries. Women and girls are often forced to go under FGM. Because FGM cuts through many religious and cultural groups within Africa, African scholars and activists have argued for the ban on the basis of health. Young girls that go through FGM have a higher rate of infections, perinatal risks, and a more a more difficult labor and postpartum hemorrhaging. There are no positives for AGM, and the process itself can be can cause severe trauma and even death. So, to address these violations of human human rights against young girls and women, it is important for countries to develop enforceable policies and change culture. But because of the deep roots of African cultures, which there are thousands of, this is an incredible, incredibly difficult task. Women in these countries must also stand together to prevent this from happening and create the change from within from within the communities and move forward. There also needs to be campaigns to end FGM within African countries run by locals. Locals would have a better understanding of the issues in the cultural and religious context that FGM is taking place in. But there's, there seems to be no end in sight for FGM un- unless there is a cultural shift within these countries. So um, what does the role of feminism and education have within these communities to promote um, kind of an end to FGM? Um, I can speak on education. So education provides women and girls with the resources to combat this practice. Um, I think it's important for women within these communities to rise and be on the forefront because they understand the religious cultural significance of FGM. Women are oftentimes the largest proponents for FGM, so I think education would be... uh, would be a great factor in stopping this and that's our last episode of season five for right of apply thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed the season as much as we enjoyed recording it a special thank you to all the guests we had a pleasure of working with this year and the queen's international affairs associate association for hosting the podcast Please keep up on our website for new content in the fall and follow our social media pages at right of reply to learn about ways to get involved with ROR in the future. Thank you.